Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. So I'd like to welcome all to uh, Mornings with Joel, our CRE podcast, and we're very, very excited and delighted to have a uh, good friend of mine join us today, Theo Bell, who's up in the D.C. area. What's up, Theo? How you doing? What's going on, man? It's good to see you, Joel. All right, all right. So, yeah, so we are looking forward to um, doing some great things together. I couldn't think of a, a better person to have on here, so I wanted to go ahead and, and get you in here so we could talk a little bit about what's going on in your sure. market and uh, up there in, in D.C., and you know, you have a pretty good grasp as to what's going on around the country. So uh, we're going to dig into that a little bit. I guess one reason why I bring that up is because of your background. So why don't we go into a little bit of that? Uh, how did you even get started in the uh, commercial real estate space? That's a pretty good question. Originally, I'm from Dallas, Texas. That's where I went to high school, Skyline High School. Shout out to Oh, you know what? That explains something. <laughs> Walking around with that cowboy hat and those pictures. I get you know, it now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So those that see me in the head, that's, yeah. I get it honestly, a couple of places. Um, <laughs> and I went to college at ERAU, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, uh, to study aeronautics. Mm-hmm. That's what actually my background is in aeronautics. So okay. I do a lot of things with, uh, and I kind of, and as I get to tell you a little bit more about myself, you'll understand how I plan projects. I do everything with the ending in mind. So uh, I, just like all pilots, you know, you take off and land, but you want to make sure that you understand everything that's going on in your flight. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I went to flight school at, um, in the Army. Uh, I was in the Army for 12 years. I was a Blackhawk pilot. Okay. So that explains a little bit more about my military background uh-huh. and my, my connection to the government. I got out in 1996 after 12 years in the military. As a pilot, uh, served in the Gulf War, two tours in uh, Iraq, and uh, got immediately into uh, government contracting. Well, a lot of folks asked, why didn't I just become a pilot? And I, actually, that's what I wanted to do. But during that time, it was shortly after deregulation. There were so many pilots on the market, and there was a contract that I thought I was suited for, and, uh, and I went for it. Six months later, I was awarded the contract. So that's all I got into government contracting. Okay. Working on a few initiatives there at Fort Hood, Texas, which is my old background, uh, mm-hmm. again, I did a lot of work with the residential community initiative where the government studied whether or not they should pretty much, you know, privatize development of military housing. So instead of doing what they typically do was, you know, budget and try to do it themselves with through the Corps of Engineers or some other means, they actually ended up outsourcing it to private developers. During that work, I was contacted by a larger company. And at the time, I had a small company at about... Uh, roughly 42 employees working for me as I developed contracts. And I was uh, contacted by a larger firm to move out to Washington, D.C. to be their government affairs national account manager. So mm-hmm. that's how I actually got into into this market and got into what I'm doing now. At that time, I was, uh, uh, when I say doing now, government contracting. And during that time, I was working for major manufacturers like uh, Wilson Art International for Micro Corporation, DuPont and actually getting their products specified in those types of uh, anything that was being built by the government from military housing to ships, planes, passenger terminals, you name it. I was uh, working mostly with engineers because mm-hmm. that's in my background. Then 9-11 hit and everybody pivoted. You know, that kind yeah. of shifted uh, everyone's priorities. And for me, it got me into infrastructure and specifically uh, government buildings. 
So I worked with one of the, the, the first national broker contractors, a company by the name of Capital Craig, which is a small boutique firm doing real estate for the federal government and basically outsource government outsources their broker contractor activities to firms that can actually go out and find real estate, both land, buildings for them to lease. Mm-hmm. And so I worked for that company for about four years on the contract. We did about 225 leases for GSA, just under 9 million square feet. So it was a pretty good contract, learned a lot, and we were actually approached to be sold. And at that time, I was looking to transition. So I ended up leaving the firm and uh, doing some consulting for a larger firm. And that firm picked me up, a company called Equus, which is through a series of vendors purchased by DTZ. And now they're a part of the uh, Cushman Wakefield family. Okay. But uh, prior to them purchasing the company, I was recruited by uh, Newmark to start their mm-hmm. government practice. So I used to work for for a company called Newmark Knight Frank. I think it's still oh, yeah. called that now. In 2008, uh, that took me to that firm and I was there. I started their government practice. And basically what that meant was that um, for agencies that were not GSA or did, did not want to work uh, directly with GSA or want to have some type of their delegation of leases or construction done by someone other than GSA, I worked on the government practice side where we worked directly with the agencies as opposed to working for GSA. Mm-hmm. And so in that work, my, my primary client was FBI. And so I did a lot of work for the program project management unit of FBI mm-hmm. as they started rolling out, looking at different sites to do the new headquarters. Because as you know, after 9-11, the uh, security requirements changed for buildings. And so we had to get out of those old spaces and get into new spaces. And I worked directly for the team there that was looking to do that. Okay. So that kind of took me around the country. He used to yeah. talk about, you know, how I got into all these different markets. We did about 60 buildings, so uh, that's a lot of buildings and a lot of markets. And so mm-hmm. you, you work with national developers, uh, regional developers, and as you know, real estate is regional business, so you get to meet pretty much everyone in the space, um, mm-hmm. people who own land or the larger, larger land owners in that area, get to negotiate contracts with them. And it's interesting, when, you, when you're negotiating in places like Montana and Idaho, you don't, you know, it's hard to put a 20 page or 40 page or 100 page GSA contract in front of them yeah. of uh, landowners and expect them to sign it. And a lot of those pretty much were two pagers. We did a lot of deals where we actually shook hands. We still, we had to go back later on and do the, yeah, the paper uh, it up, the paper it up. But yeah. a lot of that was done by just, you know, the way that middle America does, does business, which is, you know, handshake. So that was, that was pretty interesting. And, um, mm-hmm. uh, Let's see uh, how I get into what I'm doing now. So now I'm a developer. I develop uh, clinics and hospitals for the VA. I have a contract right now to do, I think 2019, I think I bid it on, bid on four, four projects and I lost the first two, which was interesting. I learned a little bit about, you know, development and how it works because I, before I'd worked for other developers as a, as a consultant, mm-hmm. here I am now with my own project and bidding, you know, with my own money and my own mm-hmm. team. And so I've, I've been on projects in places that I was familiar with, Camp Dorado, Missouri. I've been mm-hmm. on a project out in Montana. These were buildings that were going to be leased to the VA. And uh, then a bit on one in Tyler, Texas. And then the last one in 2019, which was the largest one, I was awarded, which was the, uh, the one I'm doing now in Loveland, Colorado, which is an 86,000 square foot facility mm-hmm. that we're developing, that we broke ground, believe it or not, during a uh, during the, during COVID, during this whole uh, pandemic. So that was a challenge, you know, to mm-hmm. be honest with you, you know, something that you you think is going to happen one way and then, you know, 
again, a pandemic is something that no one saw coming and it yeah. totally affected the market and changed some things. But for me and my team, we were able to, to get it done. We're 50% complete on the project right now. We're scheduled to deliver it early, which is also good. We're given 30 months to deliver it. We're going to probably deliver it in about 24. So okay. pretty good project. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's exciting. So yeah. you you've decided to to focus on projects where uh, you have the exit already in place uh, in that's this correct. case with the with the VA. So it, it yeah. reduces your it mitigates your risk factor to a large yes, degree. Yeah. Yes, I talk about risk all the time when I'm talking to students and you know the different ways that you have to mitigate risk and and how leverage and debt, um, you know, the more leverage is, the more, you know, riskier the project. So mm -hmm. as you know, you know, the structure, you know, how you structure the capital stack is also mm -hmm. risky. All those things I talk about when I do some, I do some guest lecturing at Georgetown as well when I talk about GSA projects. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So no, it makes sense. So in a project like that, like you're describing out in uh, Colorado, will you actually maintain the building and lease it kind of under a triple net type arrangement or are you going to sell the building off to um, another uh, investor? Mm, that's that's the question, right? <laughs> Can't really say right now, Joel. Um, okay, all so, right. But, I, but, I, but I'll tell you how that worked. Um, you know, the process of bidding a, a, a government project, obviously, mm -hmm. it's uh, it's full and open. And the unique thing about my project is that there's a, a veterans first contracting program in place. So I'm a veteran and under the VA and the FAA also has the same program. Uh, if there are two or more bidders in a project or any type of RLP or request for lease proposal, there are two or more veteran owned businesses. The government sets it aside. It's part of a project. It's part of a um, kingdomware award that basically says that if there's, you know, what they're trying to do is give more projects to veterans mm -hmm. and veteran owned businesses. So instead of bidding about, you know, against 30 or 40 different bidders, because these things are, you know, highly you know, sought after, I'm down to like, there's only like two or three, maybe four guys okay. like myself that are able to do that. So that that increases my my ability to win these projects. Mm -hmm. So like I said, the one that we won and we are we are in the contract with is, a, is, is sitting on 13 acres. And we bid it with a gentleman who was actually doing a 300 square foot facility that he's doing right now, 300 acre facility, I'm sorry. So we got 13 acres of the 300 acres that we're doing for the B8 just outside of the uh, the airport there. John by the name of Martin Lynn, who's a really good friend of mine now. He's very good at what he does. Uh, he owns, he's the largest landowner in that market. Mm. And uh, we're partnered with him in doing that. So we bought um, the, the land. I bought the land and then used the land as a down payment to get the construction loan. And that was about a, let's see, $5 million purchase of the land and about $29 million construction loan. And then uh, started the process. And then during COVID, there were so many changes that uh, that happened. You know, the sterile processing was a part of the the new agenda for the VA mm -hmm. because of COVID. And there were some other changes in ads, so it ended up increasing the project for over just over twelve million dollars of uh, changes, which no one expected. So mm -hmm. imagine having to go back to the bank and say, "Hey." We got a change order for twelve million dollars. <laughs> Need more money. Yeah, I didn't anticipate what you know. I did anticipate them because I have a a, tw a twenty year lease mm -hmm. on this, so it's a twenty year firm term lease. I just anticipated that the bank would say, "Sure, no problem, Theo," but they didn't. They said, "Yeah, we'll do it, but we need you to come up with some more equity." So again, having to come up with the, equity, the way it works. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I had to come up with another 
15 percent of that equity so i had to come up with another 1.8 million dollars so as you can probably imagine having to go back to my source and say hey look um yeah. i know you gave me this amount of money but now i need more yeah and, and luckily i had a great relationship with him and at that time my my equity investor had some other plans so you know long story short he was able to get me on get me the money i was able to get the loan and we continued with the notice to proceed and are still you know getting everybody paid on the project so that was one of the biggest challenges i've seen right now was that these um increase in uh, construction costs mm-hmm. right now i know it's ridiculous right now getting finished materials lumber i mean you, you name it everything's ridiculous i think lumber costs now are like 360 percent of yeah. what they were when i started so those are some of the challenges and again all the things that you you know as a developer mm-hmm. you, know, you have to plan for or right. at least mitigate the risk for so let me let me ask you this because you you bring up a good point obviously um you know, our relationship started off with my knowledge of you from more so as a realtor, you know, and, and holding a right. commercial real estate license and then to make that that pivot. And I've seen it happen before. But what kind of was the impetus and went through your mind when you said, you know, what, there's a another opportunity here with this skill set that I have, these opportunities that I'm seeing? You know, what was it really that made you make that jump? Because you have a lot of people that are in the real estate space and they, they enjoy it. They love it, but a lot don't make that jump. So what, what was it really in you that uh, made you decide to do that? That's, that's another, another great question. So I'm a, I'm a principal broker. I started my firm in 2011 uh, after leaving Newmark and became a development consultant, basically helping other developers go after these government projects, mm-hmm. being their advisor, helping them with their lease as they start to put that together for the government. And so I did that for a series of companies, larger landowners in the area, and started to develop the skill set of going out and doing site selection work and doing all the other upfront work to actually, you know, pursue a government lease mm-hmm. and decided that, you know what, I'm doing all this work and putting the teams together. And, you know, what does it take for me to make the jump from being a development consultant to an actual developer? And of course, you know, money (laughs) was the biggest challenge, credit, all the things that I needed to become that I needed a partner, obviously, because I didn't have the type of background that that to deliver one of these. So the long story is or long story short is that you need a partner that can check the boxes where you can't check the boxes. I had the background in government contracting. I had this wonderful opportunity to to get set aside work. So after having a brokerage firm and a being the managing partner of a principal, um, my, you know, the, the principal partner and managing partner of a, of a firm, mm-hmm. I was able to uh, buy my partner out. You know, he decided that he wanted to go and do something else. And so that would, that allowed me the opportunity to change the structure of the company and the operating agreement of the company mm-hmm. to focus more on becoming a developer versus just doing principal, you know, brokerage right. uh, type work. So, that's what I did. And then went through the certification process of becoming a service-disabled veteran-owned small business, mm-hmm. which gave me the, you know, again, in government contracting, you have to go through a series of accreditation type steps, you know, getting involved with the, the strategic acquisition management sourcing website for the, for the government, being able to check the boxes on all the different types of certifications that you need to be able to qualify for these types of opportunities. So I did that. It was a lot of work. Got a lot of good, you know, legal advice and uh, a lot of folks that were kind of encouraging me. But then again, 
the, the biggest step was to actually get that pro- that partner would allow me the opportunity to use their credibility and their background as well as my own to go after, you know, when I put my proposal together that it showed that the government, that they weren't risking, you know, it wasn't that much of a risk to right. award me a project. So that's really what I had to do to, to get into this position. And, and that's what works for me. I don't know what other folks do. I know, I know some other, yeah. other, other guys that I know that have pivoted into the space that were brokers before ended up into development had, you know, have similar stories where they saw an opportunity to pivot their firms from just, you know, working as a development consultant or mm-hmm. a, a principal broker into actual full-fledged development. Right. Everyone that I've talked to, and I did talk to several guys that before, because I was looking for partners, they all said the same thing. You need a partner who can check the boxes that you can't check. Right. And can allow you to go after the equity and the debt that you need. You know, so yeah. that's what I did. No, I, I think that's a, a very valuable point, you know, especially as uh, minorities trying to do more and grow in this space. A lot of us don't have that generational wealth, you know, that would have been available. You know, you think about the uh, story of, of Black Wall Street, which, you know, they just had the 100 year anniversary this last week. You know, one of the arguments was made that the generational wealth of the families that were destroyed during that period of time ended. So you have a lot of folks living today in poverty because that was stolen from them, you know, because of the riot uh, back during those years so, or massacre, as the, as the president says. So it's quite interesting, you know, how you have to kind of build that back up. And one way of doing it is forming those alliances where, just like with any business, you know, you want to look for areas where you're deficient. You know, it's the old Henry Ford model, right? I don't have to know everything. I just have to know people who know everything, right? right. And then put those pieces together. So that's a very valuable point. You know, now one thing I've, I've noticed, Theo, that you've been able to do masterfully is come together and really build relationships. And one thing you mentioned to me before a few weeks ago is that, you know, you see a lot of deals that are half-baked. And what I've noticed of your deals is that they never have baked The team is always strong. The projects are solid. The locations are great. I mean, everything just lines up. So it's easy to say, yeah, this is a deal that we would certainly be interested in because of that. So you mentioned it's developing that skill set from your, your pilot days. How do you feel that that really played into how you take your approach when it comes to putting deals together? Uh, you got, I tell you what, you're, you're, you're spot on with some of those questions. So <laughs> the reason that I guess I'm able to do that is because, again, being a pilot, you know, you have to plan your flight before, you know, you have to take in, into consideration things like weather and, you know, when you land the plane, where you're going to park, where you're going to, you know, refuel, mm-hmm. you know, how the crew's going to eat, where they're going to stay overnight and then be able to plan, this, you know, the flight for the next, you know, for taking off and mm-hmm. going to the next location. So I look at projects the same way. You know, I look at pretty much who the who the players are, who the principal developers mm-hmm. are going to be, how is it structured, if the market is where I can get them, you know, get, get guys like you involved. So the market has to be a good market, something that's solid, and it can't be something that's is not relative to what's happening right now in the market. And what a good point is is looking at places that are high growth areas, high demand areas, and understanding that these are the type of projects that a person like Joel will look at versus some of the projects that I get. I know that you know they won't have a a chance at all with with you because. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, the market, you know, there's not a market for the product. The asset is too risky. It's going to be very challenging to try to get money for that project. 
So, and, and then again, the people who are involved don't have any development experience. Right. So I usually have to talk them down off the ledge like they think it's a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I said, but it's not a great opportunity if it's not a great real estate play. Mm-hmm. So the, it has to be a good real estate project before being, let's say, for example, in an opportunity zone. So I get a lot of those type of deals where everyone has an opportunity zone deal. Mm-hmm. They think it's the best deal ever, but it's not a good real estate play without being an opportunity zone. So how could it be the best deal ever? Yeah. yeah. So I kind of look at it that way and I take that approach. And then I look at all the things that you're going to need to actually close it financially. Cause mm-hmm. I know that you have to go through an underwriting process. Mm-hmm. I know that you have some very smart people on your team. And so I think about, you know, what are the questions that these folks that Joel is going to take this project to his, his risk team, what questions are they going to ask him? Mm-hmm. And I want to answer those questions before so that you go in fully prepared and, and can meet any challenge. Sure. Yeah, yeah, very, very valid point. So it's quite interesting, but those are the the things that you got to do. And the more prep work you do on the front end, the greater probability of deals getting closed on the back end. Absolutely. Just like with anything else, you know, you don't, as you mentioned, jump in a plane and just hope it works out. You know, you (laughs) never do that. Trust me, never do that. (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah, that's that's a bad approach. So got to make sure things things work out. Let me ask this also, uh, your experience obviously is uh, quite expansive. You've done a lot from the government standpoint and whatnot, which is also taking you into uh, tertiary markets. What opportunities would you see in different tertiary markets around the country? Would it be solely government? Would you look for opportunities where the government has a, a foundational base, maybe a VA hospital or something like that, and then look to develop around it? I mean, what, what's your thoughts on situations like that? Well, I'll answer it in two ways. Uh, for my niche, I would say where uh, because of the the trend of of the military winding down in some of the wars that they we've been involved with, mm-hmm. as you know, we're in conflicts all over the world. This administration has decided, you know, depending on whatever your your thought process is about this, to wind down those activities mm-hmm. and bring our veterans home. And with that, you're going to have folks that are going to be getting out, just like I did, at different portions of their career. Either they fully finished up or they're, you know, they just want to do their first term and get out mm-hmm. and they're going to settle somewhere. So if you look at the, the way the VA looks at it, is there's a heat map across the country of where those types of folks and activities are happening. Mm-hmm. And, and therein lies the opportunities. So if there's an, a heat map and there's, let's say, 100 markets and you see that there's a trend of veterans getting out and staying in those markets, they're going to need health care. They're going to need benefits. So Mm -hmm. my product is a a medical office building. So it's not just a hospital. It's also a place where you can actually, you know, get help with your benefits. As you know, VA is uh, the the benefit side as well as the health side. And Mm -hmm. of course, they're both in a facility. So the facilities folks put those types of projects or those types of medical office buildings in markets like that are outside of places. You see a lot of them in, in California. Mm-hmm. In different parts of California, Florida, different cities in Florida, uh, smaller, some smaller markets, more where folks are retiring. But also in places like Montana and, and Missouri, there are some folks that like to go back home to places like Tyler, Texas, for example. You know, there's mm-hmm. you know, Texas is a huge state. So instead of having to drive into big cities like you know San Antonio and Dallas, they put these medical office buildings similar to what you see on the civilian side with, uh, with some of the uh, medical office products that are going into those markets. So they're close to hospitals. 
anytime you see a new hospital going up, there's an opportunity there for a medical office building. And with the military, it's the same thing. So in the Denver market where I'm building my facility, it's about 45 minutes to an hour north of the, the airport there in Denver. Mm-hmm. But they just completed a huge hospital project there. But there are plans for at least four or five CBOX, which is community-based outpatient clinics, which is what, I, what I'm building. Okay. And there are a variety of different sizes, anywhere from 25,000 square feet up to as big as I think one of them is planned for like 200,000 square feet. So these are just not clinics like you think. They're medical office buildings with two sides to them. The veteran side for they call patient type facilities mm-hmm. and, um, and and activities as well as the uh, benefit side. So, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. That, that's interesting. Yeah. You, you mentioned that, that Denver airport because I was talking about tertiary markets. Denver certainly isn't tertiary, but that airport is in a tertiary area. Exactly, so it is. Very, city very there, right. <laughs> I'm like, where, where are we going, right? I know, I know. Yeah, that that airport like is that. up there. Yeah. yeah. So but they started building out there. So, you know, it's kind of coming together and connected into the city. So They're trying. They're trying. Yeah, yeah they're trying. And, so. and in some of these markets, you see, like I said, there are places that are growing. And as you as you know, you know, Denver is one of the hottest markets in the, in, the, in the country right now mm-hmm. where folks are leaving places like California and moving into areas of, you know, states like Arizona mm-hmm. and those cities and, you know, smaller, more suburban type areas. So, so suburban is kind of a misnomer in some cases because there's this expansion going into these areas and you're seeing more of the type of uh, amenities or, you know, city type amenities in these markets that mm-hmm. were before rural and suburban they're actually getting more city-like. So I see that trend happening as well. Yeah. And then as long as you have, you know, folks coming back, there's going to be that housing need. So mm-hmm. when you see multifamily housing going up, a lot of it going up, you're going to probably need more, more, more amenities. So there's going to be a need for hospitals, obviously, you know, the military goes where most of the country goes, but they want to be in their little niche market because they like to be around places where they can get back to the bases or to, you know, places they're familiar with. So, you're going to see that. Yeah. I'm in Columbia, Maryland, which is not too far from Fort Meade. It's, mm-hmm. it's far enough where I'm not in the military community, but it's close enough to where if I need something, I can get to the base. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I just thought about something because in addition to, to the military side of it, you know, I always think of the market holistically, you know, what, what are the opportunities out there? And you mentioned about these facilities and I, I, the question always in the back of my mind is, what do you do with these malls? You know, these, hmm. these large malls, they're sprawling. A lot of them are in deep, deep trouble. And I'm wondering, would there possibly be, and this just kind of came to my mind while we're sitting here talking, possibly of the application of using this type of facility more as a retrofitting of a mall as opposed to building a new facility in uh, some of these, you know, more outlying areas. Do you think there's any possibilities of something like that taking place? Yes. In fact, when I go into a market, I use brokers, local brokers in those markets. And um, what they'll do is they'll tell me about the mall situation or some large shopping center that's that sits in the delineated area that the government's looking for mm-hmm. and say, hey, look, this might be an opportunity to, to you know, the, the landowner or the uh, the mall owner to work with you to bring the VA in. And so I'll look at things like, you know, what types of um activities are happening around because I know the government's going to be concerned about that. You know, that you can't locate what my, what I build near, you know, um, less than a mile and a half or a, a mile, a half a mile from a liquor store 
or any type of gun ranges or anything like that. So the government kind of, you know, shawns on that. As far as on the commercial side, I'm seeing activity in places like the malls uh, where shopping centers are going in. Mm-hmm. So I just saw a little go into a mall that was um, the, the space was vacated by J.C. Penney. And now there's a little store going in there. Okay. And again, little has pivoted. I used to do some site selection work for for Lidl stores. They pivoted because they've kind of changed how they're going to the market. They've looked at the market and said, hey, maybe we need a smaller footprint. Maybe we need to be in a denser area. And so you've seen a change in their site selection process as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, you wonder that there's so much real estate in these malls you know, Amazon can't turn them all into distribution hubs, right? I mean, that's right. Gotta, there's got to be another play That's right. Uh, for these malls. So you kind of wonder about that. And, um, you know, with the government being obviously one of the biggest tenants in the country, you know, there might be an opportunity there. So just something I thought about, you know, from that standpoint. Sure. There's another project that I want to talk to you about. It. We could get more in the nitty gritty offline. But, you know, a multifamily uh, redevelopment project we're looking at in Tennessee and one of the other sponsors in the deal is adamant about having uh, VA facilities on the site because okay. there's a huge lake there and there's some other uh, areas where you can either build a, a new building or you could build some type of facility like you're talking about or maybe convert one of the, the apartment buildings, you know, that, that's on the site into a VA facility. Without getting into specifics, what, what do you think about a, a project like that? What would be a good play for a situation like that? And this is in what part of the country again? Tennessee. So Tennessee. So there's some pretty large military facilities in Tennessee. Fort Campbell is one that comes to mind uh, near Kentucky, Tennessee border. There's a couple of other ones down near Nashville. So I can see that, you know, if there is a play, and I know that there are plans to put facilities there, mm-hmm. it's just a matter of knowing when they're going to be coming to market. So if he, if he needs to get find out a little bit more information, I would ask him to contact the VA to see what their plans are. And when that when that process that uh, RLP is going to come out. Okay. Okay. All right. So yeah, we'll we'll get into more detail about that and um, specifics as to you know which area and and the rest. But you know, I'm I'm thinking about that because uh, you know one one big issue, even here in the in the market where I'm at, is VA housing. You know, VA housing is always an area where um, there seems to be a deficiency, and people focus on Section Eight, but they don't really focus on VA housing. Why do you think that is? Any any thoughts on that? Being a former military guy yourself, so so VA housing used to be a thing where folks in the in the military communities would want to live off base in more of a structured environment. Now the the I guess in the last ten years or so, maybe even more, uh, the move has been to to live among the community. So there's no real push or need to to move into like a, a whole community of just veterans. Mm-hmm. Most folks are living um, in communities that have all the amenities and not just those that are associated with the base. So you're starting to see that and that trend is, is continuing. So I've actually had several projects that I've been involved with that started out, you know, being VA housing and ended up being something else. Gotcha. Just the, the demand is not there like it used to be. So okay. that's one of the reasons. But you can still do VA housing, uh, similar to what's done with affordable housing, you know, where you might take That's a housing correct. project and incorporate those people as a percentage of the overall housing 
for a uh, you know market rate development, let's say, and then you have a portion that's for VA. I mean, that's still being done, obviously. That's still being done, yes. Like I said, the, they used to be done a lot uh, more frequently. You see more projects that, mm-hmm. had, at least I would see more projects that had the, uh, the veteran housing component. There may be a trend for it to start again because, again, as wars kind of wind down and folks start coming back, there is a need for that type of uh, product. Mm-hmm. So you may see that trend happen again. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Even though we we know there'll probably be some other event pop up. So it's just a matter of time, right? Just so a matter of time. There's always something. Yeah. Right. It's just the way it is. So, all right. Well, that's that's exciting. So if, as you look at the uh, the overall market, just one thing I, I wanted to highlight again as we, um, you know, start to wind down today is uh, your approach. I think that that's something that really needs to be highlighted. You know, you don't take kind of a shotgun approach. You're very laser specific. You always begin with the end in mind and you kind of map out your progressions as you go along to make sure all the all the pieces line up, you know, and it's a it's a beautiful skill set that you put together. So, you know, one of the reasons why we do this podcast is for the next generation, you know, of, of developers and other folks that are coming along. What would you tell them as they try to step into the marketplace and, and learn from those skills, whether it's becoming a developer, whether it's becoming a commercial real estate agent, you know, what, what are your thoughts in that regard? Well, the, the first thing I would say, and I tell everyone this, uh, learn, learn real estate. Okay. So you can start by getting a license and understanding that, you know, real estate works a certain way. It's an investment similar to other investments that, that are out there, but it works a, a specific way. So I, I tell them to go ahead and, and spend the time to take the classes, mm-hmm. uh, the real classes, not just the ones that, you know, that are fly by night or whatever, become a real estate, a licensed real estate salesperson, and then work your way into brokerage and understanding how, how it works and how, what your responsibilities are to the public. Mm-hmm. And then from there, decide on whether or not you want to move to the next step to where you're actually an owner of land or an investor in land. And so those are other steps that you'd have to take, but it all starts with understanding and just like anything else, become a pilot, got to get a pilot's license. Okay. You can't just, you know, jump in a plane and start trying to fly. Right. You know, it's not, a, it's not a car. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a plane. There's mm-hmm. risk associated with it. So the same thing with real estate, yeah. there's risk associated with it. So you just don't go out and try to do something that you don't, you know, have the education or the background in and then get with folks that are more experienced, get a mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, I would tell them first thing is, you know, the second thing is to get a mentor, someone that actually, can kind of teach them the things that they don't know that aren't in the books mm-hmm. about real estate, things like, you know, the market and understanding how to find a good product, uh, find a good opportunity for development. Yeah, I tell a lot of those. Tangibles. That yeah. Those are, <laughs> what's a good deal? What's a bad deal? Right. Right. All deals you know, are not good deals. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I try to tell them just to do some practical things. You know, when you're driving down the street, you know, and you're at a, a four way intersection, Take a look at what's at the intersection. You know, you typically will see a CVS, some type of gas station or a convenience store, a Rite Aid or a Walmart or a hotel. And then you go to the next light and see what you see. And as you, you'll start to pick up at signalized intersections, mm-hmm. there are a lot of products that are very good investments. Mm-hmm. So that's a way to look at it. So and then if you see something that's that's uh, being developed and you know they're going to be signalized corners there to try to find out what's going on with the land, who owns it and see if you can somehow figure out a way to get involved in that deal. So yeah, those are very practical things that you can do. You don't think about, but as you start to talk to real estate, not just real estate agents, but people who are looking for real estate 
uh, investments, developers that are that have national programs in place, they're looking for those signalized corners. They're looking for those those new developments that are going up. They're looking for you know opportunities to get into places that other you know, other people aren't in yet. So those are some of the things that you want to look for, and they don't teach you that, but you have to. You should know that as you start to develop your skill set, because this is a, this is how you get into development is understanding, you know, how to get into deals early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly right about that. So yeah, that's that's really really what it's all about is learning how to put those pieces together, and and go from there. So good job, you know. Um, again, Theo, you you've done a great job over the years. Uh, in, in being able to to do that and not just running into a deal blindly, but making sure that it makes sense, you know, and, and always beginning with the end in mind. You know, we always heard it say it's kind of cliche-ish that uh, you make money in real estate when you buy it, you know, not when you sell it. And it's really true, you know, because mm-hmm. it's all about your basis. You know, what's your That's basis correct. going in? And uh, if your basis is right going in, your exit will be fine. You know, you don't have to worry about it. So, that's right. uh, a very, very valuable part of, of the story. So, you know, we certainly appreciate that. Uriah, uh, did you have any questions uh, that you wanted to present to Theo before we um, we move on to uh, anything else here? If you're still with us there. Hey, Mr. Bell, thank you. This is uh, great information. So I know you can go on, go on and add some, some additional knowledge to what you've already dropped. So I truly appreciate information that you shared. One of the things that I that I kind of made a mental note was around something you mentioned as it relates to mitigated risk. And I know you may mention that as you assess as you assess capital stack, you want to ensure that you do risk mitigation there. I was wondering if you can expound on that a little bit when you say risk mitigation, even as it pertains to the capital stack. I was curious if you can expound on that a little bit more. Sure. So there's different parts of the capital stack. And this is really in, in Joel, who actually structures deals, would uh, be able to explain a little bit more. But in the capital stack, you have the, the way that folks are going to be paid back. So when you're looking at risk from, you know, who's going to be paid first, who's going to be paid second, usually the guy who has equity, the guy who basically is giving you the cash is the guy who's going to be paid last. And so that's what's going to be at risk. And, and if you go to an investor, the investor is going to be, looking at that as well. So they want to be in a position where the bank is obviously going to be paid first because that's where, you know, that's, you know, in order for them to to lend you the money, they want to be in that first position. And then there's some type of, uh, you may have some type of mezzanine or some type of money that's available to you that's going to be lent to you in order to get into the deal. And they want to be paid. And then you have someone that's obviously your own money or someone else's money that you're using. So all those folks are going to have to be paid back when you start when you start servicing the debt or the loan, and so that's where the risk. You know, again, a person like myself, I'm going to give you money. I'm going to be I want to be as close as possible to the second person that's going to be paid, which I know is going to be paid the bank. If I can be first, I'd rather do that, but I know that I can't because of the type of project that you're working on. So the further back I am in, in getting paid, the more risk that I'm, I'm taking on, and that's how you have to look at it from your you know, from your investor standpoint. Got it, got it. And do you, does it make sense to, and I, I don't know if I'm using the correct terminology, but would it make sense to amortize the repayment to the investors over a certain time period, let's say five years, so that it enables you to have more of a time horizon to ensure that you're able to service back to your equity investors? 
it depends on if they give you that option, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you. Because okay. a lot of times, um, you know, like my investor told me, he's like, Theo, I don't, I don't buy green bananas. So that just lets you know right away that he's mm-hmm. not going to be in it for the long haul. He wanted his money back in two years. And uh, luckily for me, I was able to pay him back in less than two years. So and I was put in a position where I could do that. So for any type of equity out here, you're going to pay a premium if they don't have the relationship with you. So in, in most cases, if you have a relationship, you can be looking to pay. Some equity is going to cost you 20 to 25 percent, to be honest with you. And that's how much that's just the cost of getting into a project. Because, again, if you need a million dollars, you don't have a million dollars. I have a million dollars. I'm going to, you know, going to charge you for that. So you can be looking to to pay, pay me back. And I'll say, look, I want my money back in two years. So you have to work to get my money back to me in two years. Otherwise, I'm going to put some type of clauses and penalties in the agreement that's going to that's going to charge you a fee for every time, like, you know, every month that you miss or, you know, you know, it's going to be a premium on top of that. Most investors are going to do that, too, especially those that are sophisticated. They're not just going to allow you to just use their money. And again, the smaller amount of money is going to cost you more. So let's say you need $100,000. Well, you can be paying anywhere from 35% to 50% for that money. And I know these numbers are like, you know, mind blowing, but that's the market because you need the money. So if you need the money, you're going to be looking to pay whatever that investor, that equity investor is, uh, is going to charge you. So hopefully you're in a position where you have a good relationship and you can pay, you know, 15% is not bad for equity, but then get into a position where you can pay them back quicker. And uh, so for my second investor, I was able to get that charge down from a certain percentage to less than about a third of that. So I was below 10% on my equity for the second portion. But at the same time, I had to give up something. So you have to always figure out what you're giving up in order to get the better position on the equity. Hopefully that makes sense to you. Yeah, it makes sense. And I want to also ask, do you have any experience working with economic development programs and or equity sources, whether that's working with different counties or different cities? Do you have any experience in that? And wonder if you can share some some of your insights there. Sure. So I work closely with Prince George's County in Maryland. I work with their business development group pretty closely. And they're, you know, I've been doing that for about 15 years or so, actually maybe even more than that. But there are things like uh, low-income housing tax credits, uh, new market tax credits, and then uh, various other programs that the different counties will have to help you in putting together your capital stack. But I always tell folks that none of that matters if it's not a good real estate play. If you can get into a position where you can get someone, if it's a good real estate play, to say, hey, look, I will write you a letter and I will finance the whole thing then everyone's going to line up to try to get involved with that deal because you're, you've already mitigated the risk by getting someone like, let's say, a Prudential, which is an insurance company, or union money to be involved in the deal. The, the more that type of money you can get involved in your deal and commit it, the, the, the better off you're going to be with some of the other sources of income that you're going to get from the counties and, and the cities. Awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. <clears throat> Sounds good. Appreciate that. Uh, that input there. You know, one thing I was going to add about the uh, the equity part of it is it really depends on how you raise your money. So for an example, if you, uh, let's say, raise a discretionary fund, uh, then you could actually promise those people a fixed rate of return. 
and use their money to do what you want to do. So you might say, hey, we're paying 8%, 9%, 10%, whatever the amount of money is. And then you could deploy that capital. And as long as you pay back that 8, 9, 10%, 12%, whatever it is, you know, they're satisfied from that standpoint. But as Theo was mentioning, once you get into a more sophisticated type of deal and you're raising money from people who know what they're doing and they know what the returns are on that deal, it's going to be less discretionary. They're going to want to know, you know, what the money is, is going in for, what the returns are going to be. They're going to want to look at those performers and everything else, and they're going to want a piece of the action. So at that point, those returns back to the investors go to those areas where, like Theo was talking about, where you might be giving back large, large percentages of the deal, but it's okay because it gets you into a deal where you're making a very large percentage as well. So it kind of balances out. So it really depends on, on how you raise that capital. If you're just raising it through um, Betty and Bob and, uh, you know, their 401k or IRA, that's one thing. You know, they'll be happy with a 8% coupon and right. just kind of go from there. But, you know, you're talking about one of these major Wall Street funds, you know, you ain't going to get away with that. <laughs> so Not at all. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it goes. So. Yeah. Now, I, like, I like the way that you said that, Joel, because you have to be realistic in your approach. Mm -hmm. Remember, we are, uh, I don't know how many people, but people of color don't you typically have access to those types of opportunities. You know, Joel's in a great position because he's been empowered to, to loan large amounts of money to all types of companies, not, not just, not just, you know, companies that are, you know, what they call diversified companies where you have, you know, woman or someone that's, you know, African-American or Latino, mm -hmm. or in some cases, other, other ethnicities, they typically, we typically have not had those types of opportunities to get those laws struck, nor have we had those types of projects that would command the type of money that we're looking for. So for me, I needed a large amount of money to do what I'm doing. Obviously for, I'm, you know, I got the federal government behind me as, as a tenant, mm -hmm. but I still needed the money. And so I have to go out and raise that money and raise that capital. And so a lot of times you have to understand that, you know, even though you are in a position like that, the access to those types of folks aren't typically available to, to people of color. You know, you know, sometimes you don't get it from the local bank, what you need. You have to go to equity sources, you know, private families and offices to get the money that you need to, to qualify those, for those loans. So, and I know Joe can, has, you know, some things to add to that, but, that's typically what happens in those types of, uh, you know, when you have those types of opportunities. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's, that's, um, you know, kind of where we even started the conversation. That's, that's a big part of it because a lot of those relationships come from, you know, being in the same golf club or being in the same country club or going to the private academy, you know, or some type of charter school or, you know, just places where your typical minority doesn't get to go, you know, and it's generally because they don't have the money. Right. right. They don't have that discretionary money to join a golf club or to do this or do that. So you you get locked out from the very beginning. You know, I know one thing I used to talk about in the just just from a financial literacy standpoint, because I've done a lot with minorities and financial literacy over the years. And one thing that was statistically true is that the majority of white families were buying their second home at the same point when the majority of black families were buying their first you know, so you're always behind. And if you look at the fact that the majority of people make their most money from an individual standpoint when they buy or sell a house or when they sell a house, you know, you, you get it from selling a house or the death of a loved one. That's generally where the bulk of an American family makes their money. Right. So if you're not selling your house 
until you're a generation behind another ethnic group because they've already had their first house and sold that house. And they've already invested the money from that first house in their 20s or their, their late 20s, early 30s. Then you're always going to be behind. Right. You know, you're always going to be running behind. Right. It's, and it's, it's difficult to to catch up. So, you know, you have to think of, all right, like you said, learn real estate, right? Why do you have to be 10 years behind other ethnic groups? Why can't you be buying your first house in your 20s too? You know, why you have to wait until till later? Maybe it means don't buy that luxury automobile right now and things that depreciate, right? Invest in things that appreciate. You know, and I can go on and on. I, I can get on the soapbox about this, but that's one of the, the big things. And so because of being locked out of that, you know, Theo, this is one thing I would really like to get you on board with uh, myself and a few others are putting together, uh, if you will, a report card of such where we're actually reporting on companies that have promised to make funds available to minority developers and if they're actually doing it. Right. You know, I always um, give the example of, of Haiti, where there were tremendous capital you know, offered to Haiti. There were concerts. There was all this stuff. And then at the end of the day, how much of that money actually made it to Haiti? Right. Zero. Yeah. It's, <laughs> well, very right, little. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so it's one thing to pledge it is another thing to actually deliver. Right. right. And so having, um, you know, people with the access that we have and, and being in this space uh, and having some type of, um, for lack of a better word, report card, if you will, where you can actually report on that and say, hey, these are the companies that are doing it. These are the ones that have done it. And make those resources available for the minorities that are trying to do stuff as well, I think will be very, very valuable. So that's kind of the path we're going down. And, um, you know, like you said, I'm extremely busy, but I think it's important to, uh, to kind of make this happen as well. So I'm on board with that. You know that, you know, yeah. and again, the, the thing about people who have money. So let's say, for example, I'm, you know, I'm in a position where I can invest. OK. Mm -hmm. And I have that money. I get tons of people coming at me all the time wanting me to invest in things. Mm -hmm. So I'd be very, you know, I have to monitor my time. I have to look at every project the way that I look at every, you know, any project I'm going to invest in. I look at it, even though it's not my project, I'm going to be giving money to that project. So I can only imagine folks like, you know, Robert Smith or Oprah Winfrey or, you know, some of the ball players that I know that, that have that type of money. They're probably inundated with people too. Yeah. And so there's only so much equity to go around. Mm -hmm. And but you need equity to do these deals. So how do you get it? So you have to, to have to have networks outside of African-Americans. Mm -hmm. That's how you get it done. And so a lot of times, like you say, you have to have these relationships. And for me, you know, just uh, just a short story. I do. A, I'm in between. So I, I know enough. Of, I've been in the, long, in the industry long enough to where I've done a lot of business with a lot of folks, dads and moms and aunts and uncles. OK, so now. They're the ones that have the money and they need the type of intellectual and access to networks that I have and expertise that I have. So as you start to be, build your expertise in this business, you're going to be in between two. So now the same people that you did, did business with their dad and their mom, the kids are coming to you because they trust you. Mm -hmm. So it's all about that, that, that relative trust that is formed by doing being a good person, doing good, good things, not bad things. And being someone that you can be that that's reliable. So you'll see that as you know, and it, again, it doesn't have to be that far away to be church members. Mm -hmm. I get deals come to from from pastors who and pastors friends mm -hmm. and folks that I've worked on uh, campaigns for. I've worked on campaigns for guys who have been in local politics. And so when they you know, when they need some real estate expertise, I'm the guy that they call. Mm -hmm. 
or come to title companies. You know, this, what I'm saying, I guess, in, in a nutshell is that as you start to build your expertise, you're going to start working with folks who are, who have family members who need people that are reliable and trustworthy to, to advise and consult with. And that will be your opportunity to be closer to those families. And as you start to do more deals with them and make them money, then you'll have an opportunity to for them to invest with you or co-invest with you on, on your own deals. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I actually like you bringing that out because um, there's a, well, I don't, I don't want to get into that because that that's a whole nother <laughs> issue, but, but you know, it, it's, it doesn't have to be, it's not black versus white, right? No, it's, not. it's about diversity. It's about collectiveness and it's about raising all boats. That's correct. You know? So, so it's not like we're, you know, trying to just say, well, this is a black thing. I can't do business with no white folks and we got to do this alone. Nobody's trying to do that. Right. You know, but the thing about it is that diversity works because it brings a different perspective to deals and opportunities. And so having a diverse portfolio or diverse people that you work with can help you get to that next level. And as you're right, nobody can do this in a vacuum, especially right. these multi, multi-million dollar deals, 120, 200 million dollar deals. You need partners. You need assistance. You need people to support you. And a lot of the people with that talent, because a lot of us are first generation in doing this, you know, are are people of other ethnic races. And and we got to pull them in, you know, because that expertise is valuable to us. But everybody wins in a case like that. So that's correct. It's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing that we can all benefit from. So, you know, it's just the the excitement is being having access to the door. That's right. And And the door being open because it wasn't always open. And being and being a person who is willing to network, okay, right. and I can't stress that enough. Enough that what you what you just said needs to be expounded upon, and it, it needs to be uh, driven home. Mm-hmm. You cannot do this with just your people. Like, I, for example, for me, you know, I started out in a small boutique firm that was owned by an African American that had two white partners, two white male partners, and then that relationship expounded because we were good at what we did. Again, we did two hundred twenty five leases just under 9 million square feet, never a protest. We got a, we got a reputation of being a solid company with good, you know, we had uh, a good background, good pedigrees. We did the right thing and folks came to us with their deals. That's where you want to, that's how you want to work into this market. Mm-hmm. You know, right. you don't want to just say, I just want to do, you know, I only want to work with my people or I want to do this with these people. Or It's just cutting yourself off from deals when you, when you think like that. Yeah, You have to be able to, open yourself up to opportunities to work with people who, who appreciate your work, your work ethic mm-hmm. and your ability to get deals done. That's going to open you up to, you know, I mean, I can tell you a good, good short story. I do a lot of work in the Asian market. And so mm-hmm. a lot of folks from other countries are looking to do deals in America. So this one particular person was an asset, ended up being an asset man. He was an asset manager from Hyundai and he was calling uh, one of the organizations I was affiliated with, and no one was return, returning his call. And so my mentor at the time said, Theo, can you call this guy back? No one's returning his call. And he wants to do buy GSA lease properties. So I called him. I didn't know what he did. I just just got on the phone with him, started talking to him, mm-hmm. started telling him about what I knew. And the next thing you know, he's like, can I come to, you know, he's, he was in Korea. He said, can I come to America and meet with you? So this guy flew all the way to America just to meet with me because I spent the time and I and I talked to him through, and I and I teach him. I don't know. I taught him, and, I, and he understood, you know, how to get involved in this market, who who the players were, mm-hmm. how to go about looking for a good deal. You know, 
least term, things like that. And he knew a little bit, but, but now that he had an American, he could go back to his bosses in his country and say, hey, look, I met with this guy, Theo Bell. And again, it had nothing to do with my color. Yeah. It had to do with the fact that I spent the time. I was good at what I did. I understood what he was, the questions he was asking. I was able, and I was, and I was uh, accessible to him. Mm-hmm. So when he needed, we had, had questions in his country, I would stay up late. You know, we take a phone call. I would talk to his folks. And uh, it didn't matter. He broke, he spoke in um, broken English. He understood what I was saying. And I didn't have to work through a, a um, an interpreter or anything like that. Well, that deal ended up becoming a bigger deal for me. So I did my first deal with the company I'm working with now out in Vegas because the same guy brought his chairman and four other of his colleagues. And they, we flew to, and they flew in. And, and here I am at the table with his whole team. So I didn't even know he was that strong of a participant in his team. Yeah. Here he is. Now he has his boss and it's probably his boss's boss. And they are looking to do this deal with me. It's an 80,000 square foot building. Mm-hmm. And at that time I was broke. I was, I was a development consultant, but I was now brokering the deal. Right. So again, being open and, and, and again, you might not come from someone that you think is going to be, you know, your color or your, or your, not even an American, mm-hmm. but, it, but if you just continue to work hard, learn your craft, spend the time to, and become sort of a recognized authority, what you do, you know, deals will come your way and yeah. you know, they'll come from all over. Yeah. So <clears throat> very good point. Very good point. You know, Theo, I, I want to wrap up on emphasizing two things that you said that I, I think is very important. Number one, if you look at the fact that, you know, blacks for an example, make up 16% of the population in America and in commercial real estate make up like three to 5%, if even right. that, I mean, it's, it's microscopic. So you're right. There's just not enough resources there or, or enough of us, if you will, in order right. for us to really get this done by ourselves. So we can't do it. The second thing you mentioned is that never expect to, to get these advantages just because of the color of your skin. Right. Shouldn't have anything to do with it. You got where you were because you performed. And so at the end of the day, you know, money is green. That's what people are interested in. And Absolutely. whoever can deliver the goods and perform is who they'll do business with. That is so correct. be the best in your craft that you can be, perform and make things happen. And uh, the whole sky can open up for you. So, you know, it's been great. Theo, I, I greatly appreciate it. We're a little over time, but, uh, you know, we uh, we always get there. And, you know, you've um, brought up a lot of very, very valuable insights. Appreciate that story on Hyundai. That's a very good one you know, to keep in mind, because there's a whole lot of money back there, you know, behind that, but it wouldn't have happened (laughs) if you didn't do the right thing. So certainly appreciate that. So thank you so much, Uriah. Thank you for contributing as well. And uh, to all of our listeners, we want to thank you. This is the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast with our special guest, Theo Bell. Theo, any concluding comments before we wrap up for today? Just again, understanding money in this country is very important. I'm glad that you're having this type of podcast because it actually helps folks who don't have access understand a little bit more about how these deals work. So I really appreciate what you're, what you're doing here in your, in your platform. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly appreciate it and feel free for all of you to uh, tune in next week as we will uh, continue the discussion about commercial real estate here in America. So thank you for that. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.